Hello, folks. Dr. Maurice Selby here, medical director, producer, and co-host of Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM and the Health in Harlem podcast. While we strive to bring you the most up-to-date, reliable, evidence-based information to help you live the healthiest life possible, this show does not substitute for an evaluation by a trained and licensed medical professional. It is highly recommended that any advice or recommendations on medications, treatments, nutrition, fitness, preventive services, etc. be implemented under the guidance and supervision of your primary medical provider or appropriate specialist. With that said, we hope that you enjoy and learn from our program, and please be sure to let us know how we can best serve you in future shows. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen of the listening audience. My name is Maurice Selby. My name is Reed. My name is Michael Holmes. And my name is Anastasia. And you're listening to the one and only Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM New York and the Health in Harlem podcast featured on Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Um, we're everywhere these days, ladies and gentlemen. And... We are back, ladies and gentlemen, after a, a nice little um, hiatus, break, I don't know, some vacationing, hopefully for you guys as well. But yeah, it feels great to be back. I can save that um, for a few different reasons. But yeah, man, how are you guys doing? Doing well, yeah. Uh, spring, you know, it's a time of growth, rebirth, all that good stuff. And I think we're doing that with Health in Harlem. So there's a lot of exciting stuff to come word i agree uh however i do despise spring because this is when my allergies spring <laughs> up so which we talked about yes <laughs> it is a <laughs> mixture of misery and you know amazement at the same time but yeah man it's been good and definitely looking forward to um bringing you some more great information ladies and gentlemen um and and really as much as uh we've been dealing with this over the last couple of years um, I felt it was appropriate. We all felt it was appropriate to just come back and really talk about where we are uh, regarding this pandemic. Uh, I think everybody's aware um, of the unfortunate milestone that we just recently surpassed. One million lives lost. That is likely a significant undercount, right? Is there, I believe to be, if you ask many experts on this, many more people that have died as a direct result of COVID-19. Uh, but then we talk about the millions more adversely affected by just the fallout from dealing with this pandemic, um, overwhelmed health systems. Right. So people not getting the care they need for all the other conditions um, that need to be taken care of and treated in our system. The financial falls out, fallout, the rising social discord and manifesting in all these different ways. We've seen uptick in violence uh, throughout the country, reckless driving, anxiety and mood disorders, everything from isolation and the uncertainty surrounding all of this. 
um, increases in the use of drugs and alcohol. And we've seen a huge spike in over overdose deaths uh, over the last couple of years. And we've also just seen some some really key populations, some groups here hit by this three of four deaths were people 65 and older. So, you know, a pretty significant loss of life of our seniors, man. These are like the sages in our society, right? That are um, have the wisdom that we need for our coming generations. Uh, Black, Hispanic, and Native American people have been roughly twice as likely to die as their white, uh, white counterparts still, even to this day. And this is why if you take away anything from this program, this update, ladies and gentlemen, is that um, no, we're not in a post-COVID world. And it feels like it. <laughs> I'm not going to front it. Definitely um, just some of the things happening, more gatherings. Um, I've been to quite a few lately, um, even some of them maskless. Just the things that people are doing out there, seeing all of the social media profiles with people doing some cool stuff again and getting out and enjoying themselves, being with family, traveling. It's great. But we do have to understand that we're still averaging 300 COVID deaths per day in this country. More than half of these deaths occurred since vaccines became available in December 2020. Um, and and we still have a long ways to go. Um, ladies and gentlemen, I think if you've been listening to this program for some time now, um, we are going to say, right, that in terms of dealing with this crisis, um, vaccines do play a major role, but yet we only have two thirds of Americans that are fully vaccinated only about half of those that have actually gotten a booster shot. And that will reflect actually in some of the data that we're going to get into um, in this program. Um, but yeah. So man, just we, a, we still a have question for me real quick. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was reading a couple articles preparing for the show, I saw a couple articles refer to people as fully vaccinated and then uh, fully vaccinated with boosters. So I guess mm-hmm. by fully vaccinated, they mean just that initial dose or two doses of uh, mm-hmm. Pfizer and Moderna or that single initial dose of Johnson & Johnson is considered fully vaccinated? That's correct, yes. Okay. So if two doses of either the mRNA uh, vaccines, um, which were the Pfizer and Moderna, or you had one shot of the Johnson & Johnson Mm-hmm. Uh, AKA Janssen vaccine. And I mean, even now we look at these, the emergence of these variants, there are some experts out there saying that, right. Is that even considered vaccinated or fully vaccinated as all, as far as those initial series of vaccinations, um, right. And really now maybe the new fully vaccinated is having had a booster. Um, and this is something that is really, when we talk about the, effectiveness of these vaccines, right? One thing that we noted um, and that we'll talk about a little bit more is that as of earlier this year in January, it was found that with this wave of the Omicron variant, there were upwards of 40% of deaths, right? 42% of deaths that were unvaccinated individuals. Now, before we saw those numbers much more skewed towards the unvaccinated as far as uh, COVID deaths. Um, but this is evidence that not only right is there waning immunity uh, from these vaccines, right? So they do sort of in, in terms of the their boost to the immune system, they do sort of trail off, right, as far as their effectiveness. Um, and that's where 
things like a booster dose does come in because it brings that protection uh, right back up. But also we see that the emergence of some of these variants, especially the Omicron variant, which um, has a significant ability to break through the vaccine, right, to cause infection in vaccinated individuals and even evade some of these, this boosted immune response that we have from the vaccines, um, these variants do have that ability to sort of get around that, right, to circumvent that, um, which makes boosters um, and really just staying on top of uh, the vaccines, right, that's what makes it so important. Um, And we've seen, right, this really play out even in, in the regulatory authorities, right, the FDA sort of approving an additional booster dose for individuals over 50 years of age. Like that is why, um, just because that waning protection over time, uh, but then the emergence of new bad, new bad variants, right? Like Omicron and now the BA2 variant that's been whipping around the earth. Um, that is why it is so critically important to really stay on top of that vaccination schedule and really just keep on top of what the information is showing us as we go forward. And, and even, even touching on that, you brought up how the the Omicron uh, wave has been, uh, you know, kind of piercing through these uh, fully vaccinated populations. The FDA actually yesterday just uh, used the emergency use authorization for the Pfizer booster in populations ages five through 11. It's largely been the case that the COVID has been less severe in children than adults. Uh, the Omicron wave has shown more kids getting sick with the disease and even being hospitalized. Mm-hmm. And so uh, yesterday, I believe the FDA commissioner, he just made an announcement that uh, it would be now authorized in ages five through 11. Thing is, what I, I want to also just get out there before we really move on in this program is that right? Because one could look at this and say, well, what's the point of the vaccines anyway, right? You got like 40% of people um, or 40% of deaths, upward of, upwards of 40% of deaths being in individuals that have been quote unquote fully vaccinated. And there is a proportion of those individuals um, that have been boosted, right? Well, when we look at the subsets of groups where we see these deaths, um, they tend to be older individuals, um, significantly older, um, three quarters of these individuals or these deaths being uh, in individuals uh, 65 and older. And we know that as we get older, um, we do not respond as well to vaccines. We just don't get that same you know, robust immune response um, and boosting of our immunity that we see in younger individuals. We also know that individuals at older ages, we start to accumulate some more medical problems, right? So things that can also decrease our immune function and our ability to respond to the vaccines. And so um, a big proportion of these deaths were seen in elderly individuals, um, as we said, three quarters of those deaths. Uh, But one thing that is clear, if you look at the uh, subsets or the, the different groups, right? And let's look at the boosted group. Um, for instance, there were only about uh, 12%, and this was in January 2022, 12% of those deaths um, in individuals that have been boosted, um, whereas 30% were fully vaccinated. The remaining 58% were unvaccinated. Um, if you look at February of this year, 15% were 
being boosted, right? 15% of deaths uh, being in individuals that have had boosters, 25% being in individuals that had been that were fully vaccinated, and then 60% being in unvaccinated individuals. Yes, we have seen an increase in the share or the proportion of individuals that have been vaccinated uh, succumbing to this illness, but the, the general trend still shows that there is significant protection with vaccination. And not only from death, but we're talking about significant complications of COVID-19 that, right, I think that's also lost in the conversation sometimes in that we focus on these 1 million deaths, very unfortunate, but there are millions more that have been affected by long-term complications from the illness, chronic lung disease, long COVID, limb loss, opportunistic infections, including increased susceptibility uh, to fungal pathogens, right? Things that people just should not come down with um, in that recovery period after a, a bout with severe COVID-19, individuals coming out with fungus infections. Like we should not have that, right? That, that Typically, we saw that um, before in individuals that had severe, severely compromised immune systems, you know, individuals that were on chemotherapy or that had, you know, full-blown AIDS. But now we're seeing it in individuals that have been recovering from COVID-19. So the fallout is significant. And again, as we said, there are still individuals still coming down with this illness uh, to this day, still some challenges ahead. We are in a much better place, right? But it's very important that we understand um, that it's not over. That's that's the key message for this program um, from this update is that we still have to be careful um, out there. And so really the purpose of this program, we're going to break it down where we were and where we are with regards to the pandemic. Um, and that's that's it. And, and one thing, too, is that we know that this thing is here to stay. I, I think I was I was surprised that Anastasia was surprised about this testing situation. So no such thing, and I'll, I'll just preface all of this by saying that there's no such thing as a perfect test in medicine. As much as uh, I think it kind of, when we look at um, sort of everything in the media um, about medicine and medical technology um, and what we can do, not to say that, right, there's no utility um, in testing, but there are limitations. And that's what every test um, in almost the history of medicine. And that certainly applies to these tests that we have nowadays for um, COVID-19. And so we could start with the rapid test because I think that's one that um, a lot of people are familiar with. People swabbing themselves nowadays. These are readily available um, even for free, um, right? As you can request these, uh, the CDC. And Essentially, these tests many times look for the presence of antigens in body fluids, right? And uh, basically, an antigen is a part of the virus many, many times um, that our immune systems can recognize and bind to. Specifically with these tests, they actually have antibodies that can find and bind to portions of the virus that might be in our secretions, right? So we take that sample from our mouth or nose. Um, and in there, if you do have um, SARS-CoV-2 virus, right, you might have antigenic particles in there that these antibodies um, in these tests can bind to. Um, and then they can be attached to different immunochemical agents, right, where we can 
sort of make it light up or change a color to indicate the presence of that antigen. And so the awesome thing is that a lot of these tests nowadays are point of care tests. They can be performed by trained professionals. So you go to an urgent care or your primary care physician's office, you can have that test done and lickety split, get your result within minutes. And then we have the home tests, right, that you can have done at home as well. There are even some nucleic acid amplification tests, so NAATs, um, and even rapid gas chromatography and mass spectrometry um, tests. Now, that's fancy stuff you probably will not have access to. Um, However, with some of these uh, nucleic acid amplification tests through some uh, concierge medicine services, you might be able to get that and it might be a little bit more accurate than the antigen tests. Uh, But one thing that we need to understand, and this is um, just some information from a 2021 Cochrane Systematic Review, included 78 studies, so 78 various research projects, or we can say clinical trials even, right, that had more than 24,000 samples included. So in this whole 78 studies, more than 24,000 samples they calculated in this review a 72% sensitivity in symptomatic individuals um, and a 58% sensitivity in individuals that were asymptomatic. So what does that all mean? Well, when we talk about the sensitivity of a test, it is essentially referring to that test's ability to detect the presence of a particular illness, right? In this case, SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. And so in this 24,000 samples, right, and when they looked at individuals that had symptoms of COVID-19, 72%, right, had um, an actual true positive result. When we looked at individuals that did not have symptoms, right, 58% of those individuals um, had a, a true positive result. And so what we see here is that um, these tests are not perfect, essentially, right? And that they are not the most sensitive tests. They are not the best at picking up um, or detecting the presence of this illness. And so there are a high number, there's there's a high number of false negative results um, that we really need to um, be aware of out there. And the reason I say that is because as good as these tests are, Um, right. And they can definitely get us to a high degree of safety where we can say, Hey, this is, you know, very unlikely to, to, um, or less likely to have, um, COVID-19. Um, and then maybe that allows us to go and take care of certain business we want to take care or, or go on trips. But in individuals that are symptomatic, we have to be very, very careful. Right. Um, so it's really the way that we're using these tests. Right. So if you are, let's say planning a trip, um, overseas and you're trying to board a flight and you want to test for the presence of COVID-19 before you take your flight and you have no symptoms, everything is great, you're feeling fine, ready to enjoy your vacation or your trip overseas or wherever you're going, um, you take this test, it's negative. Um, It is one, more likely to be um, a true negative result. With that said, hey, you have a less likelihood or a lower chance of actually having COVID-19 and so, yes, you can go on that trip. But for individuals that have symptoms, 
right? We have to be very careful because of that high, relatively high false negative rate in that, right? You might be ready to board that board that flight. You might have a little, what feels like a little head cold, snotty nose, maybe a sore throat, um, or you just feel tired and out of it, right? Just maybe a little bit achy with that. And so you take the test, but it's negative. Well, we still have to take a step back because again, these tests have a high false negative rate. And therefore that, that negative result might not be um, a truly negative result. You might still indeed have COVID-19. And so just again, it's really how we use these tests. The tests are useful. They have their role in stopping the spread of this illness. They have their role in telling us, right, when we need to be maybe seen and, and seek treatment, um, you know, especially with the availability of some of the newer antivirals that have been recently approved for use um, against, right, in, in, in treating COVID-19, a positive test result, especially if you're feeling a little out of it, out of it and your symptoms are within a certain time frame, then maybe you qualify for one of these antiviral medications, right? Um, so these tests do have their roles, but we do have to be careful um, in how we use them. Would you would you say with with these tests, let's say someone is, is about to go out on the town and enjoy their night, uh, but they do feel like down with something? Are you saying these tests would not be reliable in, in that in that regard? Like, oh, I might I want to go out, but I feel a little something. Let me take a test, and let's say that person gets a negative, and so they're ready to go out. Would you recommend that person go out at that point? At that point, I would say, yo, look, you got to chill, right? <laughs> as much as it sucks. But if you are feeling crummy, so like we said, you're feeling tired and out of it, or maybe you have nausea, vomiting, right? We know that uh, GI presentations or individuals having gastrointestinal symptoms from COVID-19, especially with some of these newer variants, that is not uncommon, um, even without upper respiratory symptoms. And so... Let's say, right, you uh, got bubble guts and a queasy stomach and you're like, damn, but I still want to go. You take the test. It's negative. Still, I would say that there is still a possibility of you actually having SARS-CoV-2 and therefore COVID-19. And so the recommendation really would be to stay home and deal with that illness. And the thing is, even if you (laughs) even if it wasn't that right, there's something else that's attacking your bowels, you probably should stay home and deal with that and <laughs> not, not go to uh, spread it amongst your friends and drinking buddies and you're going to be doing shots with everybody. And Yeah. Remember, guys, COVID, puts down isn't the glass only, and you deal all- <laughs> COVID isn't the only disease out there, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, We've cool. definitely seen a recent uptick in influenza over the last few months and stuff. So there are other things that you don't want to spread to your friends and family. Um, and so I would still make that recommendation like you might want to take a chill pill. You might have to take um, a chill pill with that. A chill pill as in staying your behind home, right? Yeah. And getting through that illness. Um, now, if you did not have symptoms, you go into a large gathering and you say, hey, I just want to, maybe the rates in my community have been on the uptick. I'm going to take a test to make sure I'm not going and spreading this stuff, um, you know, out there with my friends and family. The test is negative. You have no symptoms. You feel Okay you are in a much um, safer position or much less likely to be spreading 
COVID-19 with that negative test result. Now, over days, right, if you do successive tests over a few days um, and maybe you had some upper respiratory illness or some other symptoms that could have been some sort of viral syndrome, you know, after successive tests, successive negative tests, you get to a higher degree of uh, or a higher likelihood where those tests are true negative results. Um, but with one test is very, very limited. Um, and therefore, that's the recommendation, right? So just you have symptoms, stay home and chill out. Um, we even see this with the PCR test. And actually, I just wanted, did want to shift to laboratory tests. Um, now, these tests, especially many of the laboratory tests, look for viral DNA um, in those secretions, right? And so these are, um, in many cases, the vast majority nucleic acid amplification tests. I think many people have heard of PCR tests. That is a type of um, uh, NAAT or nucleic acid amplification test. And that is, that is it. It's looking for viral DNA um, in the sample that you provide, whatever body fluid that is um, under study. And in one study, and this is really something that has been consistently shown, but um, this was a finished study reported a sensitivity of laboratory confirmed cases as 85.7% of inpatients, 95.5% of outpatients, and the overall sensitivity being 89.9%. So these are, right, more accurate um, and even more reliable tests, but we do need to be careful with these as well. And when they included patients that never tested positive, for the virus, but for which there was high suspicion um, of COVID-19, the sensitivity became lower. We're talking about 67%. And I've had this experience, right? Even working in the emergency department where we've had patients come in, um, and this is from the start of the pandemic to even now, just last week, uh, one case that came in where I'm like, oh man, this is it. You know, looking at the way that the patient came in and oxygen levels being low and just sort of the story, um, even did an ultrasound of the patient's lung and saw some very characteristic findings that would say, hey, this is very, you know, this really looks like COVID-19, right? This person is suffering from COVID-19 and lo and behold, test is sent. Um, I look at it the next day because it takes some time. Sometimes it can take, you know, hours to even a day. Test comes back negative. Um, but does Maurice Donovan Selby believe that negative? No, <laughs> because the patient had a high um, suspicion for COVID-19. And even on additional um, you know, subsequent um, imaging, radiographic imaging, um, including CT scans, so computed tomography scans, um, they also had some characteristic findings of COVID-19, but lo and behold, a negative PCR test, right? Um, so um, is that a test that I believe? Not necessarily because we know that there are false negative um, PCR tests. It's certainly a more accurate and more reliable test than what we see with a lot of the rapid testing um, that is being done, especially the antigen tests. However, again, these tests have limitations. Um, and so the, these two um, have relatively high false negative rates and that is why this all of this stuff must be taken into consideration um, when we make decisions about treating patients with COVID-19. When we talk about the false positive rates of these tests, those are essentially non-existent, right? 
So if you test positive on one of these tests, whether it's a rapid at home test or a PCR test, isolate, you know, follow that isolation mm-hmm. protocol. Proceed, Correct. even if you have no symptoms, proceed as if you are infected with SARS-CoV-2. Isolate accordingly, uh, you know, run the gauntlet of quarantine and isolation and stuff. Word. And I'm glad you mentioned that, Reed, because that's one thing we don't talk about false positives, but indeed there are tests that right individuals test positive, but they might not actually have um, COVID-19. Um, but that is exactly the the point in that something like that, um, especially if you were to do this at home on your own rapid tests and you tested positive, you got to take that result as if it truly is positive and um, mm-hmm. either isolate at home and speak to your primary care physician. If you become symptomatic, then you can uh, seek help, which I am always a fan of. If you're in doubt or you're having really bad symptoms, get to your nearest emergency department and then they can do further investigations. Um, But what I too would say, right, with that false positive, in addition to isolating, and let's say you had a business trip or you were trying to get back to work, that is when I would say, hey, okay, I got this result. I'm going to go in for additional testing now. Maybe I need a right uh, PCR test. So I'm going to go to my primary care physician or urgent care or right. The ER is always open. Um, I would say save that for if you really had symptoms and you needed um, to be seen uh, to manage those symptoms or to make sure that you're safe. But that is really the recommendation is that we take that test very serious. Positive result is positive until proven otherwise. Um, Mm. with some more definitive testing. And we're going to touch about therapeutics later on, but I also wanted to ask, in order to receive any of those therapeutics, do you necessarily have to test positive? Are you required to test positive for COVID? Or are those tests not considered not reliable enough? That So that's a great question. And it depends on the health system in which you are seeking treatment, Various institutions have different protocols that um, and some would require a positive test before a person being rendered um, treatment. Now, one thing, as we just pointed out, right, that in that with the knowledge that these tests do have limitations and that they can be falsely negative in a case of high suspicion. Right. So a person that has clear signs and symptoms of COVID-19 um, especially like now what <laughs> seems to be classic stuff like loss of taste and smell, right? Um, something we don't see with a lot of other viral syndromes. Um, maybe they had a contact with a person that tested positive um, and maybe that was even symptomatic, right? Well, that individual, even with a negative test, they have a, I have a higher suspicion of them actually having COVID-19. And so I would probably consider treating that individual um, even in the face of a negative test, right? So it depends on the, the protocols of the institution in which you are seeking help, but it also depends on the situation, the patient at hand, right? And how probable the disease is um, for one to to be prescribed uh, these antiviral therapies. Let's get back to, I don't know, man, how are you guys with your mask game these days? I'm going to be okay. honest. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the place I work at, pretty much nobody that works there wears masks. We do check vaccination status for everybody that comes in still. Um, that's just a decision that the business has made to continue doing. Uh, it's not required at all by the city. But yeah, a lot of us don't wear masks. Um, 
And, you know, it's, it's pretty obvious because every now and then somebody at work comes down with COVID and the next couple of days, everyone's wearing masks. And then a day or two later, we're back, we're back at it, you know, but I have been thinking, you know, especially lately with all the, the rising cases in the city, you know, there's no mask mandate out yet, but it's probably coming. I'm not going to lie. It's it's probably coming soon. Mm. Every time I feel like the the government or, you know, any city government or federal government has said, uh, we encourage you guys to, you know, start wearing masks again. The caseloads are going up, blah, 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 blah. It never, you know, stops at just that. There's always like a warning, pre-warning, you know, cases are going up. Everybody start wearing masks and then cases continue to rise. And then eventually uh, there's likely going to be a mandate so yeah Mm. i have been considering um at work to start wearing my mask all the time again i'll tell you man i go uh, imani my daughter's five so she has there's a lot of birthday parties right parties and stuff a lot of gatherings all the kids running around and uh, of course just handling day-to-day affairs going in and out of supermarkets and stuff i mean Georgia has been open for some time, <laughs> never really had, you know, really uh, stringent mask protocols or mandates down here. But we've had businesses and stuff, especially larger chains that had their own mandates in play. And I will tell you, I just I don't um, these days. Right. I, I, the only place where you'll see me wear it all the time, every time. Um, and that's my N95, actually, that I'm wearing is at work in the emergency department because that's a high risk place, but I don't wear it in many other places these days. Um, now a concert or something or a ball game, probably going to wear it um, just because of the density, right? The, the numbers of people involved in, and being in that one place for hours on end, one place, people shouting and yelling around me. Um, but yeah, I haven't been wearing it as much. Yeah. I haven't been wearing it much either. I would say mostly in like the subway, you know, I'm not even concerned about, I mean, I am, but like the mostly me wearing a mask in the subway is like, I just don't want to smell the subway half the time. And uh, now that masks too, been, the anonymity of having <laughs> yeah, your face covered <laughs> now that masks are a little bit more um, regular in our society, it, it doesn't, it doesn't seem so bad to just be wearing it around places where I don't want to be smelling people for the most part. Put a little like your vapor mess. rub on the inside <laughs> of your mask. <laughs> exactly. Y'all are characters, yo. I just uh, do that in the hospital, so I get it. <laughs> uh, yeah, especially I remember the New York City odors walking down the street, man. And oh yeah, it could be one minute of nice, pleasant aroma and then I can just switch to straight poo uh, you know in what a matter of steps. I've noticed a lot of uh, restaurants and, and businesses have just I, okay maybe um this is not accurate but i've heard i've smelled like some smells in these restaurants i'm like i think it's because people were in masks they don't like mop as often i don't know what's going on every, every time i take my mask off i get a whip so now hygiene standards have decreased because of <laughs> oh <wearing>. no <laughs> you gotta study that first before you can make that claim what did you I'll, think that they would increase because I'll everyone's like okay i'm wearing a mask I'd I hope so. Probably double check to make sure I don't <laughs> smell bad. Yeah. So, or you uh, smell your own breath. Exactly. You could. You gotta consider that possibility. <laughs> yeah. Oh, smoking Lord. cigarettes has probably gone down. <laughs> For sure. Hopefully, 
Um, but yeah, long story short, ladies and gentlemen, masks work. Um, I, I think there's there's tons of evidence showing that they do, especially when it comes to decreasing the spread. Um, and most effective would be three ply masks, so multi layered masks. Um, when it comes to decreasing the spread of illness, but also you can have some protection from that, um, even with a simple three ply face mask. And even more protection is garnered for yourself if you wear an N95. Um, I don't think anybody out there is willing to agree with that. This will, I think, probably never change regardless of anything, even new variants on the horizon. Uh, masks are always going to be um, effective, ladies and gentlemen, at yeah. giving us some protection and also with dealing with the spread of this disease. But I think using them smartly, right? And one thing we saw was just a backlash. Um, one from the uh, CDC and other regulatory agencies and health, um, public health agencies sort of seemingly waffling back and forth with, right, masks are recommended now or initially when they were not recommended at the start of the pandemic, um, but then became um, recommended and even mandated, right, and going back and forth. Well, that's the thing. The the situation is constantly changing, ladies and gentlemen. Um, and so, just as Maurice was right, you'll never catch me without a mask. I remember running um, in 2020 in the spring, man, like going on runs um, with my mask on, right? Mm -hmm. It's just something that doesn't happen today, but the situation has changed quite dramatically in that we are now have vaccines. I'm vaccinated. Um, I write the rates of illness um, in my community are low right now. Right. So that informs my decisions, my personal decisions on making masks, on wearing masks. Um, and we've seen the, the CDC sort of pivot to say that, hey, this is going to be an individual choice. Right. In many cases, in many situations. And we want that to be an informed choice on mask wearing. Right. When you're going to when you wear a mask, when you are not going to wear a mask. And we have tools that allow us to right, that give us that information or give us that um, additional information we need on mask wearing. So I actually checked last night and something that I actually do pretty regularly is just type in and we will actually put this in our show notes, ladies and gentlemen, on the podcast, the tool where you can put in is a county checker, county COVID-19 checker, where you put it in and it tells you the risk in your area, right? And so um, with that risk being low, yes, I feel it is safe for me personally to go into a supermarket um, without the mask. Um, now, when those numbers start to tick up, when the rates become higher, um, that is when I will employ the use of a mask. If I'm going to, let's say my in-laws, right? Um, and maybe I came from one of these birthday parties with a million germ-ridden kids <laughs> running around, sneezing on everything. And uh, you got like the open trade, open platter of food that everybody's been reaching into. Well, when I go see my in-laws, um, I'll probably wear a mask to protect them, right? Because of that recent um, exposure. We actually had this scenario literally just a week and a half ago. Um, some classmates, or actually just friends of ours, um, we were all at a gathering, and a couple of the kids end up testing positive for COVID, right? Shortly after that, and we all start getting notifications from the school and stuff that there are other children testing positive. So we've seen an uptick recently. Um, and so, yeah, after these gatherings, when I go visit my in-laws, I know, hey, I have to be more careful around them, right? They are elderly, more susceptible or 
to having or at a high risk of having complications if they came down from this illness. I don't want to be the one to give it to them. And so wearing I would wear a mask or be more careful around them um, in light of our potential exposures. Right. Or even the, the activities that we engage in. Uh, so it's really just being smart with these recommendations um, at this point. And we do have the information available to us to be smart about this, this stuff going forward. I think that's one of the key things, right? Like compared to two years ago, we do have more information. Um, fortunately, you know, funding has been available and we have made progress in terms of what we know or don't know about COVID in terms of transmission, like rates, what we've, um, you know, what you can do. Um, I do want to point out though, that even though the N95 is probably like gold tier standard, um, there are other, are other higher quality masks um, that mm-hmm. offer better protection, which would be the KN95, which everyone probably knows about, right? It's like that little triangle. It's the triangle shaped mask is what I call it. Um, and the KF94, um, which is what I personally use. Like I like the KF94 the most, but it all depends on your face structure, what you feel comfortable with in terms of making sure that um, when you put it over your nose, you know, it's properly sealed as much as you can. Because the better the seal, the more protection and the better off you'll be. Um, mm-hmm. And you're but, saying that that's that's in comparison, correct? That's in comparison to KN95 and KF94 in comparison to cloth masks. Yeah. Um, and the regular. Um, and the, the blue surgical mask. Masks, the blue mask. Yes. I don't know if they mm-hmm. are surgical masks that they sell in those boxes of fifty, or if they're just regular three ply. Um, those yeah, I guess two, they're like certain yeah. style masks. Style masks, yeah. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So, I but this the New York City um, Department of Health has said that those three, um, the N95, which of course you know would be mm-hmm. the best available, um, are the ones that offer are better better protection than you know the cloth masks and the um, mm-hmm. surgical style masks. I, I like surgical style. I think that's the accurate word for it. Um, but as Dr. Selby said, like we all have our individual choices that we need to make. Personally, you'll never find me in the supermarket without a mask. But that's also because like I haven't gotten the flu in two years either. So I'm mm. like, oh, masks are great. I mean, great for COVID, you know, avoiding COVID, but also just avoiding from whatever other germs everyone is like expelling out of their mouths. <laughs> Which are plenty, <laughs> like, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Is all of, for that. So you, won't, you definitely won't catch me. Um in that in a supermarket without a mask unless it's like in costco eating a sample where i quickly just take it down to put the sample of food <laughs> in um other than that like there is also the the other thing that you you know when you make these individual choices you have to also take a lot of uh, other factors into account like how much do you trust the people you're going to be with mm. right um mm-hmm. how much ventilation is available in the space that you're going in Right. Like if, for example, um, New York City right now, I've gotten text messages, I've gotten IG ads, I've gotten um, actually even looking up at the website, you know, our community, our community levels are high right now, um, which is like the exact opposite of what Dr. Selby's going through. I wish it was low, but we're at high. So that means that we do have to take all these necessary um, precautions mm. and we do have to go through like a checklist of our own, right, based on our knowledge of like, okay, I'm going to X, Y, and Z place. Like what, what is going to be the atmosphere? Like, is it going to be super crowded? Is it indoors? Do they have ventilation? Mm -hmm. Do they have any windows open? 
like how many of these people are going to show up there? As Michael said, you know, they're ready to go, but they ain't feeling a hundred percent and then they still end up going. Um, you know, so all of these are things that we need to take into account and it is important to, I know that it's tiring to keep up with something that has been going on for two years that hasn't been the brightest of topics because, you know, COVID isn't, it's not something people want to discuss on the, over the morning coffee mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Major but bummer. It is important in order for us to make sure that we keep ourselves safe and we keep other people around us safe because you might be, you might have people in your life that you don't know if they have any chronic conditions or if they have long COVID from a previous infection um, or if they have anything medical related that might increase their chances. Mm -hmm. And it's like, again, since day one, it's like, keep yourself safe and keep others safe. Yes. But yeah, definitely higher quality masks for everyone. That's for sure. (laughs) Like we were saying, a lot of the stuff boils down to individual choices, which can be really frustrating. You know, you can feel like there's not a lot of guidance out there on how to behave in public. And a lot of it even comes down to making choices you wouldn't necessarily want to make because, you know, other people in public don't have your best interest in mind. So you might be compromising your actions even further, what you are doing and where you might go even further, because, you know, there's probably going to be other people there who are not, you know, compromising their actions. Um, So this really gets frustrating when we talk about what happens if you test positive. How Mm -hmm. long do you isolate? What do you do? All these different things, because there's the base CDC recommendation, which says to immediately isolate. Um, So the day that you test positive would be day zero. And then, you know, each subsequent day, you know, day one, day two, day three, at the end of day five, the CDC says you can end your isolation. You can start going back out into public, going back to work um, for like the next 10 days or so. While you're doing that, wear a tight fitting mask, uh, preferably a KN95. But other than that, that's pretty much all there is out there in terms of guidance from the CDC on how to behave. Um, other schools and other workplaces might have different guidelines. So, you know, always contact whatever institution you're at to see maybe they have a seven day isolation period. Some places, I think even hospitals are doing three day isolation periods for their workers. So just paying attention to all those little local tips. Uh, I know, at least for me, I've seen and heard about a lot of people because the CDC doesn't really say anything about testing once you've tested positive. Some people uh, like to sort of, quote unquote, test themselves out of isolation, um, where after day five of isolation, they start testing themselves. um, Then when they, you know, come back negative, then they can start feeling more lax going out in public. But I'm not a huge proponent of that. Maurice, what do you think? Like, you know, like we talked about earlier, those tests aren't necessarily the most effective. Mm -hmm. Um, So what are your thoughts on testing yourself out of isolation? I think it really comes down to, in addition to the testing, right, by testing yourself out of isolation, right, after your five days of isolation, if you even move on to the point where you get a negative test result, you are probably shedding a lot less virus than you were when you first were diagnosed with the illness, right? But I think another thing to add to that are just your symptoms, 
Um, so if you're still feeling horrible, right, um, even in the face of a negative test, I would exercise caution. I would be more likely not to go back out and resume your normal activities. Um, one, because your body needs to recoup one. So for your own personal benefit, resting and getting through the illness is what is recommended for your recovery. Um, but then two, to not spread, right? Again, viral shedding. Um, and especially if you have a lot of symptoms going on, diarrhea, um, you know, somebody goes in behind you and flushes the toilet and you got viral particles spread all throughout the vi- the bathroom. Um, or on the other hand, you're hacking and coughing everywhere, touching surfaces and your secretions are getting everywhere. You're spreading the illness. Um, so I think there are benefits, especially for individuals that need to get back to work or that have some other very important task or activity need to get back to. Um, testing out of isolation um, is is a route, right? It's something to consider. Um, but also, again, we have to be cognizant of our symptomatology as well and really how you're feeling as we do those those tests or move to come out of isolation. That's a good word. Symptomatology. Symptomatology. Never heard that yeah. Before. So you're yeah, <laughs> the symptoms you're displaying, right? You're hacking and coughing everywhere. Makes sense, yeah. You should, you know, exercise caution even in the face of a negative test. But if let's say, right, you did your five days isolation and you're feeling much better, maybe you're almost symptom free, um, and you get that negative test, then you are in a much better position to resume your activities. Um, in a way that's safe for yourself, but also in a way that is safe for other people. And I would still recommend wearing a mask if you were going to resume your activities at that point, regardless of the um, level of uh, or the prevalence or level of the disease or infections in your area. Before we move on to therapies, one other thing I forgot to mention might seem obvious if you test positive, but notify anybody you've been in contact with. Notify your place of work so that they can notify their employees and tell them to go receive a test or Mm -hmm. wear masks at work. Uh, Because remember early on in the pandemic, there was like, you know, a lot of time and effort from the government went into the test and trace core, which not really too much came of that. I don't know if we still have that. I don't know if that still exists. Um, I'm not sure to tell you the truth. Yeah. And it's so difficult. You know, it's so difficult Mm -hmm. to do that. But uh you know, it really is down to the individual to sort of do their own contact tracing and notify people that they've been in contact with that, hey, I've been in contact with you. Now I've tested positive. You should probably be wary of that. Go get yourself tested too. So as of last month, the test and trace is still up and running um, because I was in close contact with a very close contact. We were ju- we had dinner together. It was outdoors, but he tested positive for COVID. He did his due diligence because he tested positive at a home test um, and called, you know, New York City Test and Trace. And I got a text message from them telling me that I have been in close contact with someone. Um, and they isolated, you know, because I, I have a high risk family. I was, I'm fortunate enough to be in a position where I can fully isolate from them. And I did actually test to... I mean, I kept testing to negative. Fortunately, I didn't catch it, but I still took the precautions, tested the first, second day um, because I went to CityMD, tested negative, PCR Mm. negative. And then after day five or six, I was like, all right, let's see what's going on. Went another, did another PCR and another rapid, both came negative, but I'm like, I'm going to give it a few more days. 
Um, but that's because I come from a high risk family, right? So my choices might seem a little bit more extreme to other people, but I wanted to make sure that I took every possible precaution to available to me in, you know, given my privileges um, to make sure my, my family doesn't get it in case I got it. But test and tracing is still available. Um, New York City Health and Hospitals, there is a phone number that you can call in order to actually talk to a doctor um, from the New York City Health and Hospital Systems if you don't have a primary care physician of your own, should you test positive. But Reed does bring up a very good point. You know, you have to tell the people that you were in contact with. One of the things that has been noticed is that um, you start experiencing symptoms earlier on from exposure rather than having the two week wait like we did in the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, it's great in the sense that if you, I mean, it's not great that you get sick, but in the sense that, you know, you're not exposing people, you're not exposing other people's for two weeks, but you'll be doing it for like two to five days because then you'll start feeling bad. And then you're like, Oh my God, I'm sick. Right. Um, but it just, you know, if you're in New York city, we are fortunate enough to have New York City Health and Hospitals um, and their phone number, even though their menu for options that you can click are along and they are, you know, you have to wait a while. Um, you do get, you know, advice and everything. Cause I actually called the number myself and I'm like, Hey, I am like in day 10 and I'm still testing negative. Can I come out? <laughs> and they're like, yeah, you can, you definitely can. <laughs> um, so they, they were like, why are you still in quarantine? I said, I want to be safe. So <laughs> utilize, utilize the city's resources. Absolutely. And just um, just correction, earlier in the pandemic, individuals were spreading the illness before symptoms. But you were saying uh, two weeks Anastasia. Like you start, like the symptoms could show up after 14 days of exposure. In the beginning. Yes. In the beginning, yeah. that was that, that's, one. That's what I meant. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Whereas now. Whereas with, uh, yeah, with Omicron, the incubation period is typically mm -hmm. like two to five days. So yeah. Two to five days. That's what the people at uh, the New York City Department of Health also told mm -hmm. me mm -hmm. when I called in. Moving on to therapeutics. We've come a long way, like an in, in oh, yeah. immensely long way um, from those early days where we really did not know what to do for patients other than supportive therapy. And even our supportive therapy um, was not sufficient, um, if sometimes even harmful, especially when we talk about individuals that were placed on ventilators and um, really just how we manage this illness. Um, we've definitely come an extraordinarily long way. Um, everything from vaccines that are available to prevent this illness and prevent individuals from having complications in the first place to newer antiviral medications that can, uh, when individuals are positive with COVID-19 and especially when they're having symptoms or even severe symptoms, we can give medications to prevent them from having complications. Um, and so you've probably heard of some of these already remdesivir. This has been out probably the longest of the antivirals. Um, it is, a nucleotide prodrug of an adenosine analog, long story short, is that it stops uh, viral replication, ladies and gentlemen. 
Um, it basically shuts the virus down, stops it from replicating, um, and therefore we reap the benefits, right, of treating this infection. And this is approved by the FDA for the treatment of COVID-19 in adult and pediatric patients that are um, greater than or equal to 12 years of age and weighing more than 40 kilograms. And it is approved for the treatment of mild to moderate COVID-19 um, in high-risk, non-hospitalized patients, right? And this is a uh, three-day course that has started within seven days of the onset of symptoms, um, or it is approved for the treatment of hospitalized patients with COVID-19, especially severe COVID-19, um, for a five-day course. Um, this has been out for some time, uh, definitely uh, effective. But then we have some newer agents um, that have come out that really um, are exciting because they prevent individuals from going on to have complications uh, from COVID-19. And so we have Nermatrelvir and Ritonavir. Um, essentially, this is what we call Paxlovid. That's the trade name, ladies and gentlemen. Um, and it is a combination. Nermatrelvir is basically a protease inhibitor. So again, another antiviral medication that stops viral replication. And then it has this ritonavir that is a, um, attached to it, another medication that can actually boost the amount of this agent in our systems, right, to fight the uh, infection. And this is basically recommended using a, a twice daily um, administration for five days in non-hospitalized adults and pediatric patients that are um, ages 12 and older, and mainly when it comes to mild to moderate COVID-19, um, and especially for those individuals that are at high risk of disease progression, right? So individuals with medical problems like heart disease, high blood pressure, diabetes, um, individuals that maybe obese, um, and even certain ethnic groups, uh, racial and ethnic groups, Blacks, Hispanics, um, as we've known, right, we've had significantly worse outcomes when it comes to COVID-19. And so this is who this medication is for. Individuals, mild to moderate, moderate illness that have had symptoms within five days, right, starting within five days, um, we can administer this medication to basically keep them from having complications from COVID-19, right? And we're talking complications requiring requiring hospitalization. Um, and of course, we're talking about preventing um, death. And there is some uh, trial data out there showing um, effectiveness, effectiveness in reducing these complications up to like 89%, right? Um, huge reductions in individuals having complications from this illness. So this is you know, kind of a game changer in that it's an oral formulation. So individuals do not have to be hospitalized um, or have this administered intravenously like remdesivir, for instance. Um, and it is something that it actually works. Now, it has some side effects, right? It can cause one to feel a little ill too. Diarrhea is a major uh, side effect of it. So yes, it, it has some adverse effects, um, but it is something that is effective and just another option out there that we have um, in terms of treating this illness. Now, one thing, too, is that because of a lot of the stuff we see going on around us, um, manufacturing problems, shipping problems, 
um, this medication has been pretty hard to get. There are certain databases with pharmacies that do have this in stock. And so if you were to get a prescription, you can actually check out one of these databases to see where you might be able to get the medication. Um, that is something that we can put on our podcast notes page as well um, for you all out there. But you do need a prescription, right? And it is recommended that you see a physician or other healthcare practitioner but in order to get this medication. Um, but just something out there that is pretty much a game changer. We also have Molnupiravir. Um, this is also another medication that basically stops viral replication. Achieved emergency use authorization December 23rd, 2021 for the treatment of adults with mild to moderate COVID-19 who are also within five days of symptom onset and that have high risk of progression to severe illness. Just another uh, option out there another oral option to prevent the progression of this illness. You know, definitely excited about these medications. Um, as I said, the challenge is just getting your hands on them, right? If you even are prescribed these medications, just getting them at your local pharmacy can be a challenge, but it's just something to be aware of. Really, again, we will always say on this program um, that you're probably uh, on the better side of just getting vaccinated, right, in terms of preventing complications from COVID-19, because even if you were to come down with it, you probably would not progress to severe illness um, requiring hospitalization or more. And these medications, too, would just be sort of complementary to you having been vaccinated and keeping you safe um, if you were to come down with a breakthrough infection um, after va vaccination, right? We are always fans. We talk about this week to week on this program, especially when we talk about COVID, this sort of multi-pronged approach to protecting yourself and your family against COVID-19. So um, vaccination, but hey, knowing that I'm vaccinated, right? That is great. But I too know that, hey, I have these medications. So if I get sick um, and really having symptoms, right, this might be an option to keep me from progressing to severe illness, despite you know, the protection that I already have from having been vaccinated, um, this would just sort of be like a, some additional armor for me to put on, right, if I were to get sick again uh, from this illness. So just some things to think about. I will say that um, from a therapeutic standpoint, some of the things that we talked about earlier in the pandemic, so chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine um, mixed with azith azithromycin, um, that is recommended against right? Um, you know, basically this does not work. Um, the, the recommendations are not to administer this for treatment of COVID-19. Uh, also want to mention interferons. Um, this is also sort of recommended um, against treating for COVID-19. And ivermectin, can't say it enough that uh, this does not work for COVID-19 um, and is not recommended in the treatment of this illness. There are many others others out there that uh, we can delve into, but really um, there's a an immense resource. I think it's really important. It's just something that we can all check out and is available to the public. This is the NIH, National Institutes of Health COVID-19 Treatment Guidelines, and they actually lay it all out there, the drug information, the clinical data behind it, and the recommendations 
on treatment of COVID-19, um, basically going through everything that is available and whether or not it works and is recommended or not. And so we'll post that into the show notes as well. So you can check that out for yourself, right? This way, it's not just us as talking heads um, telling you what the deal is, but you can go and see for yourself um, with some real evidence-based, real information, not your social media variant. That's it. So yeah, man, we got a lot of options. I'm excited in that um, we are in the best position we've ever been in treating this illness. We are in the best position we've ever been in terms of just dealing with and living with this as we go forward. And I think those are things to be happy about, despite where we, you know, what we've had to go through to get to this point. Um, the loss of life, the disruption in our daily lives. Um, it took a lot to get to this point. And I, I think that we also need to be um, positive about where we go from here, right? I think there are a lot of lessons to be learned from this pandemic. And we can really do ourselves a lot of good service by learning from those um, early lessons, right? As we move forward. This is something that we can live with, ladies and gentlemen. We can live with it safely and we can even learn from it and grow from it and really fortify our institutions, um, sort of really grow personally and how we deal with all types of infections from on a day-to-day basis. If you're sick, stay stay home. I'm not going to curse on the radio, but just stay there as much as you can. And I know it's not easy to say that. Um, I'm hoping that, right, from this too, as we said, just learning the lesson, right, from the labor standpoint, right, that maybe we it's time that we raise our voices up as workers and say, hey, we need sick time, right? We need every American having some guaranteed time to rest and recover when they are ill, right? You should not be required to work um, when you are sick because you don't get better and you're colleagues and your employer can also get sick as well. Um, So it's in everybody's best interest to get some legislative support in terms of, um, you know, how we respond to illness, both personally um, and in our institutions. And like I said, so many lessons to be learned and we are in the best place we've been. And with that said, that's our uh, positive spin on health in Harlem because you can focus... (laughs) We talk about a lot of negative stuff, but uh, we always put that spot positive spin on it. Hopefully gonna... you're keeping those COVID tests negative. Word. That's the key. <laughs> exactly. And we swapped ourselves recently. Is it, fortunately, we got a lot, like a lot of um, allergy issues. So we got to test yeah, every now too. and then. Um, but if your symptoms aren't changing, no fevers, no nausea, vomiting, it's your usual cough and stuffiness with allergies, especially down here. The pollen is crazy, man. Um, But yeah, that's how we use the test, man. We use them smartly. Ladies and gentlemen, we thank you for tuning into Health in Harlem One. We also thank you in advance for sharing the information you learned on this program and just telling people about our program in general. Uh, Also, ladies and gentlemen, we want to shout out the staff at WHCR, especially Angela Hardin, the general manager and the production manager, Tina Dixon. Shout out to them. Also want to shout out Giorgio. Um, and the rest of the Health in Harlem team. And ladies and gentlemen, as always, this show is dedicated to the memory of Miss Gloria Thomas. Harlem, take care of yourself.